Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective. Tonight, we're talking about the history of that to-do list killer email with Dave Crocker. So grab a pile of cookies, something to drink, and join us as we talk about the history of networking. So around 1980, uh, there began to be an international standards effort for email, and there were preliminary discussions, pre-standards effort outside of the ITU, which was then called CCITT, um, and it was done through IFIP Working Group 6.5, and it went for almost two years. The output of this, it will sound like a ridiculously small amount of uh, product. Uh, and yet it was phenomenally helpful. And that was a basic architecture for email. The basic architecture for email was there's a user agent, there's a mail transfer agent. That's it. That's incredibly powerful because it says you have a moving system and you have a using system. Yeah. If you think about hosts versus packet switches, it's the same kind of idea except up higher. Um, the, the, the justification for this distinction, since it wasn't in people's thinking in general, was that there were four systems that demonstrated this. Uh, Xerox, the, the park system, had that split. DEC had an email system that had that split. Uh, Eric Allman's Deliver Mail and then Send Mail demonstrated that split. And the system I built at Delaware, uh, starting in 78, uh, where I went to after Los Angeles, um, it was called MMDF, it also demonstrated that split. And so it was incredibly powerful. The standards effort that, that ensued from that was called X400. Few years ago, at a uh, an award ceremony for CSNet at, at the IETF, uh, I I asked how many people in the audience had heard of X400, and as I expected, very few hands went up. And yet, X400 was the international effort with massive support by industry and massive support by governments, and 15 years of effort and largely complete failure. It's not that there were none running, but they didn't scale and it was incredibly complex. Yeah. And one of the problems was they tried to do everything all at once. They also made a lot of stuff that was very reasonable. It was an absolutely well-intentioned effort. Um, and, uh, and part of why I was gonna sort of push back on what Radius said was um, the, the issue about the politics that, that, that uh, always comes up about ITU versus ITF. Um, they both have politics. They both have well-intentioned people. They both have really good lists of what they want to do. And so the, the success track record of one and problematic track record of the other, I think, is for other kinds of reasons. And the one that I latched on uh, when I was uh, in the early 90s trying to write about the, the ITF standards process is that in the uh, in both places, people start a standards meeting and everybody's got their list that they want to uh, have in the standard, of functions they want in the standard. And my observation is everybody's list is quite good. People are well-intentioned and knowledgeable and thoughtful. Um, and so my list is quite good. Your list is quite good. Your list is quite good. The problem is they're all different. And now we have the question of how to resolve the lack of, of overlap. Uh, and in the ITU, they try to do the union and only shove something out when they've completed that. And in the ITF, in the early days, there was so much time pressure that people wanted a working system yesterday. And so they would do the intersection, the common core, 
and I, I, I liked to believe there was also the benefit that because I'm not getting all of this stuff that I want, I'm thinking about how I can add it later on. Yeah. And so the, the design frequently will be more extensible than it might be if I thought I was doing the complete system now. I can't, I can't um, uh, prove that that's true, uh, but, I, but it seemed to be, uh, it, it seemed to show up more often in, in IDF work than in other work. Yeah, I would, I would say that's true. From the early days of the ITF, I would say that's true. And, and another reason X5.400 failed from my perspective is that a lot of people said they were going to implement it, but they just put lipstick, lipstick on the pig, took what they had, put like a cover on it and called it an X.400 cover, and then they shipped it, and then none of the X400 implementations quote unquote implementations out there would interoperate. So it was useless. So, so then so, got back. So I know that yes, that happened, but it failed way sooner than that. The, <laughs> the, com the complexity of X400 and X500, it was pretty much the same set of people. Um, it replicated uh, these, these design errors. It was incredibly complicated stuff and not very well worked through. And in spite of the fact that they wanted to do everything all at once, they didn't actually do enough to make a working system. And um, I don't know if you uh, saw what X400 email addresses looked like, but, oh, yeah. but, but they were um, attribute value pairs in sequence and a fair number of them. And when I say it that way, I mean, yes, you actually wrote attribute value pairs in sequence with slashes between them. But the best part was your, um, your ISP, your, the, the people who were doing the email switching uh, publicly for you, was part of the address. And so if you were multiply connected, you had multiple email addresses. And I actually saw business cards that had all of the variations of a person's email address. Um, and, and so right off the bat, from a usability standpoint, I mean, a network management usability standpoint, never mind a human uh, usability standpoint, it completely lost. Um, so, but, but it was the standard for the world and, um, and they really pushed very hard at that. Uh, I, I remember there, there were, there was an, uh, email, uh, industry association that I started going to in the uh, late eighties and then the internet blew up and, and, uh, uh, these X 400 guys were getting overwhelmed. They completely dominated the industry group. And that led to some dogfights. Some of us, especially me, uh, had with them about internet mail and they, they just absolutely wouldn't back down. Cause of course their entire business was based on that. And there came a meeting around 1974, which I, I refer to as the year that the internet really went mass market, uh, seemed to reach about 4 million users, which is a, a common reference. Um, and I, I showed up late for one of the, the working group meetings. And as I was walking in, a, a, a couple of uh, uh, internet savvy people sort of started smiling as I walked in, because up at the front of the room was a couple of these X400 geeks. And they were just going on and on that, yes, yes, internet mail is still very, it's very popular, but really X400 is the long-term solution. And um, I just sat back down. I, I, I walked in, sat down. I didn't say a thing. And after the meeting, a couple of these people came up and he said, but they were saying all this silly stuff. Why didn't you, why didn't you object? Because you always object. I said, don't need to anymore. The battle's over. I mean, we're, we're done. Um, so that was great fun. Um, okay. 1980s. 
Besides the X400 stuff going on, uh, 1983, the, the internet becomes uh, operational. Um, and uh, besides TCP IP, we have the beginnings of internet mail. We have uh, SMTP that got defined as an independent protocol. Um, and we had RFC 822. All of this was done at the same time as was DNS. Um, and so there's some, a lot of overlap, a lot of inner discussion. Um, uh, I was at the University of Delaware at that point, and the project we were doing um, initially for the Army and then for uh, NSF uh, was dial-up email relaying to the ARPANET, and then later after I left, the, the Internet. Um, the idea behind this is that, was that attaching to the ARPANET was way too expensive. I think it was $50,000 a year. And so they wanted, and, and microcomputers we, were becoming a thing. And so uh, you could get some basic capability really quite cheap, if only you could get connectivity. Uh, telephone links were still pretty expensive, but if you were judicious, you could send email back and forth. Um, and so I was tasked with uh, making that possible. Uh, one of the other graduate students, Ed Zerkowski, wrote a really interesting telephone link level protocol uh, that was adaptive. It, would, it could run over anybody's system. You just had to tell it what special characters, like at sign, going back earlier, um, uh, not to use. Um, and then, of course, Unix had UUCP, which developed into Usenet. Um, the project for NSF that we did was CSNet, and I actually characterized that as market research for NSFNet. Uh, that's not so much an email discussion, but it is an interesting discussion in the, the history of the internet. Um, and then separately, there was an IBM host-related uh, connectivity project called BitNet. Uh, and all of these were legitimate email-related uh, projects uh, going on. Uh, they developed significant installed base, um, and they didn't really interconnect except through the ARPANET if they connected through the ARPANET. For CSNet, um, my approach was to take an ARPANET address and uh, play with the left-hand side, putting in the percent sign. So it was user at CSNet host, sorry, user percent sign CSNet host uh, at ARPANET host. And we had a relay uh, at Delaware and we had another relay at the RAND Corporation just so that we followed uh, John Postel's dictum that if you want reliability, you need to be on separate seismic plates. <laughs> which, is, um, which is still true today, by the way. Right. The, and, and for doing the email relaying over the telephone uh, network, I had a very, very simple little transfer protocol. And the only interesting thing about it was uh, either side might be the one that initiated the connection. So the people with the mail might have it, the people wanting to send, uh, so the people wanting to send mail might have it, the people wanting to pick up mail. Uh, you could operate in a mixed mode where both sides might initiate, uh, or depending on time of day and all the rest of that. This is back in the days when telephone calls were really quite expensive. Um, and that meant that during the session, you had to send everything you had and pick up everything you had. And that was not the model in the ARPANET and then SMTP approaches, uh, which was a, a send only because the ARPANET and then uh, internet, the model is always connected. And here we were off in the hinterlands with not always connected. Um, and so I had a, a, a function that was called turn. You'd, you'd connect, send everything you had, and then say, give me what you got. 
And um, during the uh, SMTP meetings, um, uh, as things went along, I finally said, by the way, there's this disconnected mode that would be good to support. And I described it. And um, nobody else really had that much experience with it. A few people had some, some Unix experience. And Vince Cerf was still at ARPA at that point uh, as a program manager, and, and he's really perfect. One of the jobs of people in positions like him, his, is to try to figure out who can fund some work and how you convince them to, to fund it. And so he, he paused for a moment and he said, submarines. <laughs> so that took care of the marketing uh, effort that we needed. Uh, however, the actual command we put in had a security problem and didn't get used. And it was several more years before uh, some other people uh, offered an alternative. And, and uh, I think it's still in the protocol. I don't think it got dropped out. Um, also, at that time, we had uh, the beginning of um, PC-based uh, email pickup using the post office protocol, POP. Uh, and that was the, the standard way of getting mail and uh, worked okay at small volumes as you grew uh, more, not so much. Um, and uh, eventually going into the 90s uh, came the IMAP protocol, which is more per message manipulation. Um, and eventually there's, there's still support for POP, but by and large, uh, even if all you're doing is down downloading your mail, uh, IMAP is what people use. Technically, IMAP can support multiple modes. You could use it in a kind of a webmail sense of keep all your messages on the server. Um, and uh, just look at them at your client system. IMAP supports that. Another one is downloading in a pure pop mode. And another is a more uh, asynchronous mode uh, where the best example of that is if you're on a plane and you want to be able to do your mail, you do your mail. But when you connect up, it resynchronizes. Uh, it has always been terrible at the resynchronization process. Um, and uh, I think that the effort that's under, underway right now uh, called JMAP uh, in the ITF is likely to have better success with that. Um, so that moves into the 90s. Um, 1990, at an ITF meeting, uh, Vince Cerf, who was at CNRI, the, uh, the, the parental organization that was taking care of uh, funding ITF meetings and making things happen and doing lots of other good things. Um, uh, Vint had a guy working for him, Greg Vaudre, and he tasked him with uh, making email better because we were, merge we, we were emerging into an international world and all we supported was ASCII, ASCII. not just text, but ASCII. Yeah, but ASCII. And that was, sorry. No, that's right. Yeah, ASCII text. And, and that was kind of embarrassing. And so we, the, the goal was to be able to support alternate uh, kinds of characters uh, because we were being rude to not do that. And that led to uh, some really painful discussions in the, the nascent working group. It wasn't, it was, it was more like a boff. We didn't have those formal rules yet. Um, and uh, there were several different uh, bits of warfare that started up. One of them was a collection of people who said, well, we'll just do 8-bit. End of discussion. Because, in the, in, in, because the protocols in those days, all the text-oriented protocols uh, were 7-bit ASCII in an 8-bit field with the 8th bit off. And there was a certain cadence you always have to say that with. 
Um, and uh, so these guys are saying, well, just send 8-bit. That's all we need to do. And then there were a collection of people going, I don't think it's quite that simple. And there were people saying, well, we just make the protocol be 8-bit. And okay, maybe more elaborate. And others of us going, well, we really want the object to be 8-bit and we want it to be able to run over an existing text world. And uh, that quickly turned into an unresolvable uh, uh, religious debate spawning two working groups. This is, by the way, the only example I know of in which two groups were formed to compete with each other and ended up collaborating. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, but it worked really well. So a whole bunch of us went off and did the object which uh, we thrashed around for a while. And eventually Nathaniel Bornstein came up with the design. Um, and the way I describe this, because this is another one of these textbook examples of not just incremental functionality, but exploiting the opportunity. Um, the task was to add international characters to text messages. This means that we need to be able to label what international characters we're adding, what, what type of international characters, because um, uh, we didn't have one in those days. We had many. There were lots of different standards, and there was one emerging. Unicode was emerging, and so there were people going, well, just use Unicode. It didn't have anywhere near enough field experience for that decision to be comfortable. Um, and so you need a label that says this is this particular standard. Well, if we're going to do that, why don't we break the message into, into pieces so that some can be one character set and another can be another character set? Okay, that's not a big deal, we can do that. Um, well, as long as we're doing that, we don't have to actually say that it's text. We could say that it's some other kind of data like uh, a voice uh, or a picture. And that's how MIME ended up creating multimedia mail uh, where its goal was, and it did it for something very close to zero incremental expense over the original goal. That's the part that's neat. It's not just that it did it, but it did it really cheap once you bought into a basic design approach. Right. So the original goal was just to be able to support different language or character sets. That's right. Because there were all these standards out there. I remember that being a problem when I was in, in the Air Force and working on networks and stuff like that. And then it just ended up being, well, since you're going to do this, you can just support whatever you want to. Right. That's right. And there had been multiple efforts to do multimedia mail. X400 was already underway for a long time then, but there had been multiple efforts. And that included, by the way, uh, uh, in, in pre-SMTP was MTP. And um, uh, uh, John and his folks uh, had a proposal for multimedia mail um, and it died. And so there were just a whole collection of these. Um, and here along comes Nathaniel's uh, design, which says uh, we're not changing the infrastructure. The infrastructure doesn't have to know anything about this. The only adopters of this change need to be the author and the recipients. It doesn't have to be all of the recipients. Anything that's text will still be text. It's just the other stuff. And he very quickly, and this is a, another bit of uh, how to succeed, uh, and that, uh, he, he built an, uh, an add-on tool that could take a my message and translate it into the, the in, in, and interpret it. So you could have a piece of email that came in, your email system wouldn't know about MIME, and you'd write the file out, 
because it's just a text file. And his uh, extra little tool could then get give you access to the attachments. There was um, a hack that had been used for some years for doing a, a version of binary attachments using bin hex. Um, and there was there were some standard ways of encoding it with with start and end uh, uh, delimiters, uh, but it was never official. And I think I even looked once for a document about it and couldn't find it. Uh, so it's very popular, but only popular within a geek community that would tolerate the, the horribleness of it. Um, so with MIME. Um, we, we, uh, we had multimedia mail and it was really fun. Uh, I was at the time we, we got this stable, uh, I was consulting at a company called general magic, which was trying to do the original tablet. Uh, <laughs> and many, many of the people working on that went off to do it for real. Um, a, a version of it in parallel was done and the details don't matter how called the Newton. And so that's the version of this technology that, that you know about. Well, one of the tasks was, was a telephone-based, uh, messaging-based uh, uh, active mail, active message, which is to say program in a message uh, to, called Telescripts. And I was consulting on that. It happens that uh, one of the other people on that project was the lead technical guy for X400 and X500. And by the way, he also wrote the very first uh, ARPANET NCP while at UC Santa Barbara. And he completely understood the problems with X400 and X500. We chatted about it and he, he really was, was very sorry that the complexity had developed and that it hadn't been all that usable. <laughs> so I walk in with, with uh, MIME stabilized and I'm going, Jim, you're just gonna love this. Uh, let me describe to you how we've added multimedia to email. And I described it to him and he looked at it and he looked and he said, but, but that's wrong. Well, it was ugly, but it wasn't wrong. And that's a difference we always need to keep in mind. <laughs> Herein endeth the, the message. Um, in the mid nineties, there was an effort to revise the specs. They'd been around for a number of years now. Um, and it was called the drums effort and uh, all, all the core specs were revved. Um, so RFC 821 became RFC 2821, uh, 822-2822. Uh, there's been more revs since then, and it's 5321 and 5322 are the current numbers, I believe. Um, uh, I will tell you that at the time drums was going on, uh, I was also participating in a pre-ICANN uh, group that was trying to specify uh, the upgrade of new top-level domain names for uh, the DNS. And a uh, very political effort. It would, it really, it's why I don't have anything to do with ICANN. Um, and uh, the, the craziness of that work, both inside our committee, which stabilized eventually, and I'm quite happy with the, the report we turned out, but, but the craziness within that committee and, and much worse, the craziness, uh, really nasty craziness outside, um, foreshadowing what, uh, what ICANN, you know, the world of ICANN was gonna be like. Yeah. Uh, at ITF meetings, I would go from those meetings and walk into the drums meeting as a kind of meditation respite. <laughs> because, because for all of the complexity and for all of the differences of views, it was an extremely constructive environment. And uh, as a small example, uh, there was a question about whether to give IMAP the ability to directly submit mail rather than have you go through SMTP. And there were arguments for, and there were arguments against. They spent a year 
discussing this in, and the reason it was going on for that long was they set themselves the task. I wasn't doing any of this, set themselves the task of actually implementing and testing what the relative benefits and, and, and negatives were. And they ended up not incorporating it. Whereas currently I believe JMAP is incorporating it, but, but it was so pleasant to be around that tone of collaborative disagreement. Um, Latter part of the 90s, um, there were efforts to build on top of email. And um, uh, for me, this was a really good lesson uh, or a reminder that end-to-end -end is always relative. We use the term, we think we know what it means, and then we discover, no, it's, it's a point of reference, it's not an absolute. We think a host is an endpoint. Well, that depends on whether the thing is going on to some other host. Um, and for, uh, I was involved in the EDI over email standards effort and then the fax over email standards effort. And I know for your um, VOIP dis, uh, uh, session, uh, there was reference to fax. Uh, that became the ITU T37, I believe. Uh, over email, it was T38. I, I might have them swapped, but they were parallel competitive efforts. We got done over email way sooner. There were products out, but it didn't catch on. And I know that over uh, VOIP, it's actually used now. Uh, but at the time we were working, they were in really, really bad shape. Um, that, but those were, those were useful efforts. Besides just wanting to be helpful, one of the things about fax over email that I was hoping it would be useful for is giving us a concept of commercial email because fax is business quality messaging of a sort, um, but it didn't work out. Uh, getting, getting discussions about business quality mail, which is a topic that has often been in the industry, uh, it's just never gone anywhere useful, no matter how much effort people put into it. Um, the other thing in the, in the 90s that started happening, <coughs> excuse me, was um, authentication and confidentiality. Uh, the first of those was PGP, which was not technically tied to email, but was immediately used with email. Officially, it's an add-on for a file conversion, but of course it was adapted. Um, and then uh, a bit later, uh, using uh, X500 certificates and the, the, that kind of hierarchical approach, given that there was MIME, there was an effort by some folks to create uh, secure MIME. Um, neither of those went very far. I mean, they, they went through the standards process, they got made better, uh, they got blessed, they got implemented, they just don't get used. Uh, and we, we, to this day, do not yet know how to make uh, uh, object-oriented uh, security functionality uh, secure at scale. Uh, the best we've been able to do is TLS, and we're not going to talk about that because that's not about email, but, <laughs> but it's a topic that should be talked about. Um, the 2000s uh, brought us to abuse as the dominant concern. Um, we had, I mean, scaling uh, as the internet blew up uh, was of course an issue, but that's straightforward engineering and there's a lot of really, really good people uh, who, who, when I was doing email in the 1980s, 100 messages a day for the site, for a relay site was a big deal. Um, and these days, um, 100 messages a microsecond, maybe. I, I don't know what the actual metrics are. Yeah, uh, but it's, if I only it's, get that many an hour, I'm happy. 
I was visiting some relatives down in LA yesterday uh, or uh, this weekend, and um, they were complaining about how much spam they get. And I'm going, oh yeah, it's it's really really bad. I said I'm getting like twenty thousand messages a day of spam. <laughs> Their I don't see little... most of the ones I get. So no, no, mine, most yeah. almost all of mine go into a spam not yeah. a spam folder, but several spam folders. Um, but but the concept of 20, well, it turns out that for pretty much forever, more than 90% and usually more than 95% of the mail that goes across the open internet is spam. And by spam, I mean that uh, abusive messages, whether, whether it's malware or whether it's just bad advertising, it's all in that category. Um, and the, the job that the filtering engines are doing is really astonishing. Um, really, really astonishing, but it's, but it's a uh, continuing bit of warfare. It's an arms race. Um, and that's why so much stuff gets through in spite of all that. Um, in the anti-abuse realm in the email, email functionality or standards arena, the bulk of the effort has been in um, creating capabilities for accountability and assertion of policy. For reference, you'll notice I didn't say authentication. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that was not accidental. Uh, authentication technology is used, but it pretty much never means what people think it means, which is why I don't use it. And I'll explain that as we go. The uh, probably, the, I mean, the, the dominant method of uh, identifying a bad sender these days, and by sender I mean client SMTP, uh, is their IP address. And that be, became dominant because it's all that they had. Because the rest of email has no authentication to it. So people use whatever they want to use uh, in any of the fields. And there's lots of different identification fields in email. Um, and so they've been using IP addresses and um, as IPv6 may yet gain meaningful levels of use. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not holding our breath. <laughs> well, yes, you are. The entire world is holding its breath. Uh, haven't, haven't you heard IPv6 is on a really good, oh, sorry, distraction. Um, but, but it's clear that with IPv6, uh, uh, for various uh, reasons that have been uh, discussed at length by lots of folks, uh, per address, uh, uh, whitelisting or blacklisting is really not likely, <coughs> not likely to scale. <coughs> so um, in uh, the mid-2000s, there started to be efforts to use domain names uh, for identification and do it in a way where there is a, I'll call it a certification of the domain name. Uh, and the earliest example of that, I think, was SPF. And it doesn't matter what the acronyms stand for. And SPF says that uh, it, it registers a record uh, associated with the domain name of the return address which unfortunately Postel called the mail from field. This is in SMTP. And I say unfortunately because it's a return address. It's not an author address. It's often an author, author address, but that's not its semantic. Its semantic is if you need to send mail back because there was a problem, send it to this address. That's a return address. SPF 
certifies that uh, that domain name has the, the right hand field, the, the domain name in that field has authorized this client SMTP IP address to send mail on its behalf. So this, this is an actual uh, accountability and authorization policy, uh, which is what the P and SPF stands for, uh, uh, mechanism. It has a problem that email likes to be forwarded and SPF doesn't like to register all of the IP addresses along the path because that's an approach that doesn't scale. A great deal of internet mail these days uh, across the open internet is one hop. And so in fact, in practice, SPF often works really well. Uh, a different approach was taken by uh, a fellow who was then at uh, Yahoo, Mark Delaney, called Domain Keys. And his approach was to add a digital signature. Um, and, um, and he did that and he went through two versions of it. Um, and then there started to be public discussions about standards effort. Um, and uh, Cisco had a proposal called IIM, Identified Internet Mail. Um, and that led, of course, to debates between the two, uh, except IIM had no implementation and domain keys had quite a lot of field experience. Um, so the result over a period of time, and I'll spare you the gory details, um, was DKIM, Domain Keys Identified Mail which is mostly the same as domain keys, but with a few tweaks, because this was done in an ITF working group. There was some real work done in it, and it uh, enhanced it a bit. Um, besides its innovations of doing uh, a, a digital signature, um, what's interesting is the domain name that it's signing is unrelated to any other identification field. It has its own identification field, and so it has to, it's doing a signature in classic crypto style, but it's not quote unquote authenticating the message. Rather, it's associating the domain name with the message using the authentication crypto technology to, uh, to create the, the glue. And uh, one of the requirements, which it's unfortunate, but, but it's there, is that uh, the signature include the from field. And so people think it's authenticating the from field, and it's not. Uh, because of the use of the crypto, it does have an integrity value between the time of signing and the time of uh, evaluating. Uh, that wasn't a goal, it's just sort of a, a freebie that you get along with it, and it wasn't really much of a concern. Um, but you can use any domain name you want. It frequently is the same domain name as what's in the from field, and there's lots of, of signers that have that as a policy, but they have no way to announce that it's the policy until DMARC. DMARC came along, uh, and this was an ad hoc uh, uh, industry consortium, so it was a sort of private cabal, if you will, uh, that said, um, uh, there's so much spoofing of some well-known domain names going on that uh, they wanted to create an ability to publish a record associated with that domain name that would say any message with our domain name in the from field must be signed with our domain name. And if it's not, it's not valid. And that's what DMARC does. Um, and you can declare that it is an absolute rule 
which means if you get anything that isn't signed by us, throw it away. Uh, or you can do softer uh, levels on this. So there's a published policy. Um, this, uh, so, so DKIM survives MTA level forwarding. Uh, and that includes uh, redirect like uh, universities often have, because when you send mail through university, if you have a university account, uh, uh, when it resends it, it doesn't actually change the object. All it does is to change the SMTP uh, envelope address. Uh, and so the actual message, which is where the signature is, is unchanged or usually is unchanged, in which case the DKIM signature can, can survive. And it can survive any regular MTA relaying, because of course it's not changing anything other than maybe adding a received field and DKIM signatures uh, ignore that field. Um, but if you go through a mailing list, that will pretty much always uh, break a signature because a mailing list is not a relay, it is a reposting agent you send a message to the mailing list. The mailing list receives it. The mailing list then resubmits it. It happens historically to preserve the original from field because this is in the service of, going back to the original definition, human communication. And you don't want to, to see a from field that says mailing list. You want to see a from field that whoever wrote the message. And when you send a reply to author, you want it to go to that person and not the mailing list. Mailing list break DKIM. Um, DMARC says our message must, in, the from field must be validated, sorry, the message must be signed by the domain name in the from field or the domain name in the, the mail from, which is and not signed, but SPF. So you have to have an SPF validation or a DKIM validation. You can't do that with, D, with mailing lists and survive. So you get a DMARC fail. DMARC is a protocol that's saying, if, I don't, if you don't succeed in validating my message, throw the message away. So DMARC is really bad if you're going through a mailing list. So there's a follow-on effort called ARC. It's underway now. It's uh, reaching its tail end, which is seeking to deal with that by adding more mechanism. Um, I think I heard in one of your sessions when you have a mechanism and it isn't working quite right and you add more mechanism to try to fix it. I'm not talking about adding value and doing new things. I'm talking about fixing problems and you add more things to fix it. At some point you should worry that you aren't going to have a dynamics, uh, uh, understand how, how all this stuff interacts. So we'll see how art goes. Some of us are helpful, hopeful and some of us are less hopeful. <laughs> Somewhat so, skeptical. Yeah, so over all the years, what would you consider, I mean, sorry, what would you do differently about email if you had a chance to go back and fix something? The, the usual answer to that question is, well, we, we should have made it all completely authenticated. And I rail against that assertion. Uh, it's an easy thing to say and has multiple problems. Uh, the first of which is we didn't know how to do it then. Witness the fact that we don't know how to do it now. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I mean, everybody has really good ideas and they, right. and they are good ideas, but we have no existence proof today that we know how to do this stuff really well at scale uh, effectively. Uh, the other is the computers of the day were completely less powerful. And so the stuff we're doing now, like, like I mean, 
all of this signature stuff is using a public key. And when Mark did the original domain keys, an obvious question was how much this was gonna kill all of the Yahoo email servers. And he did a calculation that predicted they would need only one more machine. <laughs> given, given the number of machines they had, that was, that was okay. In fact, they ended up not needing an, a more machines. And the lesson there is email usually is IO bound, not CPU bound. Yeah. So what else would I do differently? Um, Just stumped him. It's not like I haven't thought about this, but I've never come up with a very good answer uh, about it. Um, I, I, I think the fact that it has continued to operate as well as it's operated uh, for as many different uses over in as many different conditions uh, is really um, a lesson to learn. Um, and I was delighted to be part of it, but uh, I was a college dropout when these, when these decisions were being made. <laughs> and, well, it, 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 was, it, it was the tone of the day because there weren't any experts. Uh, my brother talking about creating the- oh, Wait, there aren't any experts now. <laughs> oh, but there's a lot more knowledgeable people. Yeah, there are. But. They're experts in not knowing. Uh, <laughs> he, he talks about naming the RFC series so that it didn't sound presumptuous because it was just some grad students and eventually the experts from the East Coast would come in. Uh, and of course they didn't. And uh, I think that um, that kind of uh, tentative tone uh, serves us well in complex spaces. Uh, I keep wishing that we understood and, and paid more attention to the human factors of all this. Um, I think we have um, a very serious challenge in uh, doing a lot of this technology because it's typically not done by people with good usability experience. Uh, and they're bright and well-intentioned, but they're, they don't have that skill set. So right. I think we undervalue the cost of that. And, and by the way, by usability, I don't just mean end users, I mean operators also. I think if I were going to pick a theme from uh, your talk and what technologies were adopted, like usability seems to be a thread through um, through all of it. So I think this was great. We've learned a lot. Um, we appreciate you coming on, Dave. Um, look forward to getting this out for folks to listen to it. Um, give us a brief summary of where we can find you online. Are you, uh, you, know, you got a website, do you, social media? <laughs> Are you going to so give us B your email address? BBIW.net is my website, uh, dcrocker at BBIW.net uh, or Gmail. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook, um, uh, dcrocker at jabber.org. Uh, nobody uses Jabber, but there it is. Uh, <laughs> well, the ITF community uses it. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but and it might be dcrocker, but it probably isn't. I don't remember. I don't use it very much. <laughs> All right. As bad as I am. Thank you. This has been fun. Oh, right. yeah, it's been great. It's been, it's been great. And there have been a couple of other things that you've said in there that maybe we might want to bring you back on for to talk about sealing SIP and stuff like that that might be interesting to get go through a little bit. So, cool. Good. You bet. So, Donald, where can we find you? That's right. You don't blog. Never mind. We'll just skip Donald. <laughs> you can find him at me, not you, Sharp, on Twitter. Thank you. There you go, Yvonne got it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you can find me on the blog at esharp.net and at Sharp Network on Twitter. You can find me at rule11.tech and the Network Collective, where we mind melt with the brightest minds in networking. Mm. No, you don't like that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of History of Networking. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. <laughs>